this is Terrence McNally. Whether it's gun safety, price gouging, or freedom from responsibility for spreading lies, corporations exercise too much power over government, politics, and people. As the current Supreme Court aggressively champions corporate rights of free speech and freedom of religion, here's my 2018 conversation with Adam Winkler, constitutional law professor at UCLA and author of We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to another newly recorded episode of Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. I'll be speaking today with Adam Winkler, law professor at UCLA and author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, and his latest, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Now, let me set the context of the show here. I've been doing these conversations since the mid-90s, when I took uh, about a three-year hiatus in 2014. But after Trump's electoral college victory, I felt I needed to deal with the causes, the repercussions, and the response in some new interviews. And this is the 30th such interview, about once every two weeks. Paul Hawken on climate change, Naomi Klein on No Is Not Enough, David K. Johnston on the daily dirty work of the Trump administration, and the show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on iTunes, Potomatic.com, and at my own site, TerrenceMcNally.net. Now, I had drafted some remarks after Trump's visit to Europe and the UK, but before Helsinki. Helsinki, uh, the meeting with Putin and specifically the press conference, because we don't know what happened in the meeting, but the press conference feels somehow different. The commander in chief did not defend the nation from clear evidence of a threat. And I think that sort of disqualifies you from the job. I'm cautiously optimistic that this is not going to blow over with little effect like so much else that uh, Trump has said and done has. His base is going to have to figure out how to overcome their patriotism, their, their love for America. And I suspect many may be able to do so as they've been able to overcome so many other things in sticking with him. But I have felt strongly that the Dem Democrats need to offer an inviting vision of the future in addition to opposing Trump, but this particular press conference, he may have crossed a line. And I think uh, we would all be safe in calling for a resounding election repudiation of Trump and the party that has aided and abetted him in November. And I'm hopeful that Helsinki will end up motivating millions who otherwise were not going to vote for senator or representative based on their uh, reaction to Trump, or we're not going to vote at all. And if those people show up at the polls, and as I say, if we can be this like, wait a minute, you're all in trouble now, this is a wake-up call, um, I think that could make a difference and even moderate the last two years uh, of the Trump administration um, in all sorts of ways. Now, even before his uh, capitulation to Putin, I found what's being done in our name by the president and his team viscerally disgusting. At times, it just stops me in my tracks. I believe that the popular vote has to count for something in this country. Remember, by the way, the last time the popular vote for president was overridden, we got 9-11, endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a global financial crisis. And from the loser in the popular vote in 2016, what we see is careless and casual destruction of relationships at every level in in a country, in a world where relationships matter, relationships between the U.S. and its allies, between families at the border, most insidiously, the relationships of Americans with each other, all destroyed on a daily basis by Trump and his administration. This has got to stop. If the popular vote is ignored in the election and ignored again once the uh, the Electoral College victor takes office, then it must find some way to assert its will to have its voice heard. And what we need to find between now and November and as soon as possible is strategies that actually make a difference. At the very least, we need to energize all Americans, rise up in the midterms, reject the self-destruction of our nation's standing and progress in such overwhelming numbers that the message gets through to those who have so far enabled it. Now to today's guest. With the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy, Donald Trump and the Republican Congress prepare to add another judge to the Supreme Court. It's safe to assume that the nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, has been chosen not to play the swing role Kennedy served for the last few years, but to solidify the 5-4 conservative advantage for years, perhaps decades to come. Conservative, by the way, is not the way they have been operating, but it is the term conventionally used to describe those five justices. I would say more accurate term would be corporate. 
As much as the public and the media tend to focus on issues like gun control and abortion, and those are important even life or death matters to many, the opinions that may have the greatest effects on the lives of Americans are those that involve the rights of individuals versus the rights of corporations. And in that regard, John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh come down reliably on the side of big business. Today's guest, Adam Winkler, is a constitutional law scholar and professor who's written books about both sorts of issues, gunfight, the battle over the right to bear arms in America, and his latest, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. So he's written on one of the hot button issues, and then he's written on the sort of underlying uh, relationship of the courts to corporations, which I think has profound importance. His works have been cited in landmark Supreme Court cases on the First and Second Amendments. According to a 2016 study, he's one of the top 20 law professors who is in terms of being cited by the courts. Welcome, Adam Winkler, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Tuesday, July 17th, 2018. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. And I like listeners, Adam, to get a feel for the people behind the ideas and the work that we're going to talk about. So can you tell us in your own words a bit about how you see your path to the work that you do today? And feel free to to mention mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Your story. Well, uh, I was uh, someone who went to law school, not certain exactly why uh, and not certain where I was going to go, and I really fell in love with it when I was there. Some people find law school alienating, but I found law school really thrilling, and uh, I loved writing scholarship, and I loved the idea of being in a teaching environment for the rest of my life, thinking about the world of ideas. Some people say the ivory tower is something that's isolated from community, but I think the ivory tower works best when it can separate itself off just enough so that he can pose the big questions and think about these big questions that, frankly, for most of us, we don't have time to sit and address because we're too busy paying the bills and, and making other things happen. So uh, I really found uh, my move into scholarship to be very rewarding and uh, very enjoyable. Okay, that's, that's refreshing, a refreshing perspective. And how have you chosen the subjects that you focused on? Uh, and I, I can imagine there are subjects you focused on you haven't written books about, but as I pointed out, you wrote one book in depth about gun, gun control, gun rights, and, and the laws around that, and the other, in a much broader uh, sense, the whole relationship of the courts and Supreme Court. How have you chosen what you tend to focus on? Well, for many years when I began as a scholar, I was working in the field of election law, looking at campaign finance laws regulating corporate money in elections. And this was in the 1990s. And actually, at the time, it was kind of a dead issue. There was no one really talking about it. There were no big cases coming up. Uh, there were very few scholars who were writing about it. It seemed like a settled issue. Of course, government could regulate corporations in the world of campaign finance law. Uh, and in fact, it got to the point where I said, you know, I need a new topic to write on so that I'll have interlocutors at conferences and people to debate and things like that. So I chose to focus uh, on the Second Amendment and wrote my book about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. It was during the writing of that book that the Supreme Court decided the Citizens United case, which really put the question of corporate money and elections back uh, at the sort of from the back burner onto the front burner. And from the time that decision came down, I said, I'm definitely going to have to write my next book on corporations and the Constitution. Very good. Okay, now I think it would be crazy to talk with you this morning and not talk about President Trump's press conference uh, with Putin uh, on Monday, uh, just because it seems to be, at least my feeling, kind of one of those benchmark moments that maybe things uh, shift around us. Um, your response, if any, as a constitutional scholar, uh, as an attorney, um, as a citizen, just what any, any response you have in any of those roles to what took place? Well, I think the most important thing we're seeing is uh, that we see some members of Congress pushing back on the president, saying that he didn't do a good job, that he didn't defend American interests uh, when he was having this press conference and when he was dealing with Vladimir Putin. Um, uh, however, I think one of the things the, the Trump administration shows most of all is that the framers misunderstood how to divide power. Uh, we often learn that the framers divided power, separation of powers between the three different branches of government. And by having the three different branches of government jealously guarding their own prerogatives, it would limit 
any of the other branches from getting too big. But what we realize now is that separation of powers means nothing if there's no separation of parties. When the Republican Party controls the White House, controls both houses of Congress, and controls the Supreme Court, as it will do even more with the uh, uh, with the nomination and confirmation, as expected, of Brett Kavanaugh onto the Supreme Court, um, we find that there isn't the kinds of checks and balances that the framers really imagined. Mm-hmm. And and I I mean it's interesting that you take it all the way back to that 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 uh, when one and America seems to usually uh, or at least very often vote to keep that tension. They'll elect a president from one party while Congress from another. But but as you point out, when that is not the case, all those checks and balances can go out the window. Um, we assume that's because the role of parties uh, was new and volatile at that point? Well, the framers famously failed to predict the rise of political parties and um, made no mention of them in the actual document of the Constitution and thought that in many ways the the Constitution would avoid uh, the creation of political parties. But uh, as any one of your listeners who's been a fan of the famed musical Hamilton knows, uh, the founders soon split, soon after the, uh, uh, during the administration of George Washington, over the issue of the Bank of the United States, which was the most powerful and richest corporation in America. And uh, that, uh, that bank, not only, the dispute over that bank not only gave rise to the two competing political parties, but also gave rise to the very first Supreme Court case on the rights of business corporations. And so when we talk about the rights of business corporations, it goes all the way back to Hamilton's bank. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's return once again to what's going on in Washington today, specifically uh, in terms of, are there any constitutional issues at play in what's what went down yesterday or in, and what the repercussions may be in terms of uh, the role of the commander in chief, the, the, as you pointed out, the checks and balances, the, uh, the role of impeachment and so on. No, I don't think that there's anything from yesterday that's really going to touch upon those major constitutional issues, because I think, frankly, um, the president, uh, as the voice of American foreign policy, is entitled to um, make his statements, and if he wants to cozy up to Russia... You know, that's what we elect the president to do, to make those foreign policy decisions. What we're really seeing, however, is a problem with Congress, that Congress is failing to act to exercise the oversight that the framers of the Constitution imagined that uh, Congress would do. And so uh, I think that that's the issue, but I don't, think that, I don't think that cozying up to Russia in a press conference is a high crime or misdemeanor, mm-hmm. is not a basis for impeachment, um, and is, uh, frankly, uh, uh, maybe some might hope it to be a turning point, but it seems more likely to be just the latest in a string of outrages involving Donald Trump. Now, I, I recently listened to Cherno's Hamilton biography, uh, on which the musical is, is, is somewhat based. And it strikes me that as a fledgling country that had only recently won its independence, this kind of thing, though, the, um, the threat that a leader might side with a foreign power um, was, was front and center in their thinking when they conceived of impeachment. Uh, I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't claim to be an originalist, but does that seem, I mean, what I could hear was that, you know, they, they were afraid of people siding with England, siding with France, uh, rather than this, this, this young country that they were starting. Is that, is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair to say, and it's true that one of the major concerns that the framers had was that a president or other office holder uh, would be beholden to foreign interests rather than to the American interests. And in fact, there are important provisions of the Constitution that Donald Trump is arguably in violation of, dealing with things like the emoluments uh, of office, uh, where he's receiving payments from foreign officials, even though uh, the Constitution says that he should not receive those kinds of payments with Without the explicit permission of Congress, which even this pliant Congress has not provided. Um, so there's no doubt that uh, uh, if indeed that the president was colluding with Russia to alter uh, American democratic elections, uh, that might well be deemed by members of Congress to be a high crime or misdemeanor. There is no uh, absolute rule as to what defines a high crime or misdemeanor. Certainly that would be one of those things that um, uh, would likely be included.
Okay, so now let's shift uh, to uh, both uh, your book and uh, the uh, upcoming uh, confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. And the story you tell in your book, We the Corporations, is that the Supreme Court has consistently served the corporation's agenda in kind of a growing way. You, you, you use the term that the... Uh, that the, the, the corporations, American businesses, have, have had their own civil rights campaign to gain uh, civil rights, the rights that humans held uh, heretofore. Um, and I think that that's contributed, this, this um, the Supreme Court serving the corporation's agenda and a pattern that I think, and, and I think your book makes the point, has accelerated in recent years. Um, I think that's contributed to the very specific Trump behavior we're seeing today that 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 the Supreme Court was unwilling to rule, I would say, for democracy in Citizens United, um, in Bush v. Gore, in voter suppression cases, in the, you know, letting the voter rights law uh, uh, pass, uh, you know, pass away. And perhaps most of all, in gerrymandering. Your thoughts about that, that, they, that, that the rulings of the Supreme Court over the last few years have created uh, an environment conducive to uh, Trump and the way things are going. I think that historians will look back at this period of the Roberts Court and in the law more generally as one in which Republicans worked very hard to minimize democracy, to inhibit the flow of democracy. They'll look at voter ID laws. They'll look at uh, partisan gerrymandering, which, frankly, both parties do, but Republicans have been much more successful and in control of many more legislators, uh, legislatures in doing them. Um, uh, we've also seen uh, the war uh, led by the, the Republican Party against campaign finance law that's led to cases like Citizens United, um, and uh, with Supreme Court decisions like Shelby County striking down key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, decisions allowing voter ID laws, uh, and the court seemingly unwilling to interfere or stop this extreme partisan gerrymandering, I think historians will be very alarmed at the way in which uh, the election of the first black president was followed by a major effort to restrict the voting rights, especially of minorities. Right. And, and I mean, it seems so uh, the Supreme Court is often, you know, kind of way in the background, but it seems with what's going on between the emerging demographics of this country and the resistant, if you will, um, you know, Trump base. Uh, on the on the other side, that that the Republicans have exploited these rulings, have exploited these things to hold on to power when demographics alone might say that you know that that they would have to shift their policies to to continue to be elected. Does that does that seem fair? Well, that's right, and I think that the nomination and confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court is a very big part of that story. That. Um, the Republican Party is, in many ways, counting on the Supreme Court to be a bulwark against future liberal majorities that most demographic analyses suggest uh, are on the way. We have growing numbers of minorities in our country, declining member, numbers of rural and uh, uh, people without college educations. College education, these are kinds of the things that are, uh, frankly, associated with support for uh, things like gun control and other major issues that the Republican Party opposes. Right. Now, you, I'm going to quote you. You say most Americans pay attention to the court only when it decides hot button social or political issues like marriage equality, abortion and immigration. This is kind of a, a you know, a simple question. Why? It, it, do you think that it is uh, just attention span or how much does a role of the media uh, play in that? Because it, it seems to me the media has a lot to do with with where America when America chooses to pay attention. I think that's right. I think the the role of the media is always somewhat complicated. Uh, I think that the reason why the media focuses on the hot-button social issues is because those are the stories that Americans click through. And I think stories about the Supreme Court striking down environmental regulation or uh, even more dry, striking down some administrative agency regulation for being, uh, for exceeding, con uh, or even more, striking down an administrative agency regulation for exceeding the agency's power. It's the kind of thing that's dry and people won't click on, but yet it has a huge impact when that agency is stopped from adopting uh, new and effective policies under the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act to protect our uh, water and air. Okay. In, in Roberts, John Roberts' confirmation hearings, he famously referred to himself and his role as a justice as an umpire, just 
He's not on the field. He's just calling balls and strikes. Yet it seems to me his actions in Citizens United or his court's actions, but, but he, he certainly in that had a somewhat leading role, although I know from your book is where I learned that it was a question Alito asked that seemed to lead to them, uh, you know, the, some of the developments in Citizen United. But then also his ruling on the Affordable Care Act, where he chose to uphold it while weakening it. Both of those, and there may be others, but both of those jumped out to me as being quite political, not, not necessarily radical, but political rather than just uh, jurisprudence. Well, it's always hard to make those kinds of determinations. I do think that Chief Justice John Roberts and the rest of the members of the Supreme Court do genuinely try to do their job to the best of their abilities and don't view themselves as imposing their own values on the Constitution. Um, however, I think there's a lot of um, lack of self-awareness among justices, and uh, it's amazing how predictable these justices really are on the big issues of the day. Um, uh, that uh, definitely leads to a a kind of cynicism that they're just imposing their will. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, it could be one of the reasons that uh, John Roberts um, did not vote to strike down the Affordable Care Act in its entirety, the way uh, four of his brethren were prepared to do, was because those same four brethren had led him to... Um, uh, to uh, it's because those... My, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the reasons John Roberts may have voted to uphold President Obama's health care law um, over the objections of four of his brethren who wanted to strike the law down in its entirety um, uh, was for fear that uh, a radical decision striking down the whole law would spark the kind of backlash that we saw from Citizens United. That was another case in which John Roberts took a sort of moderate, narrow view, conservative, but a moderate, sort of moderate conservative view, and his four colleagues uh, on the right really pushed him to um, issue a bold and aggressive ruling striking down all campaign finance regulations on corporate spending on election ads. Um, uh, and so it could be he was a fearful of sparking that kind of backlash that Citizens United sparked. Yeah, and you wrote an article in which you said that um, you didn't think uh, no matter who uh, – I, I, you wrote it back before the election had taken place, but you said no matter who appoints the next judge, there'll be lots of talk about gun control, but that you didn't think the court would actually reverse Heller – the uh, D.C. ruling that, uh, you know, to my mind, sort of reinterpreted the Second Amendment, y you, can, you can clarify that. But you said the same thing there, that you thought that they wouldn't do so even if they wanted to because uh, a, a liberal court, if there were such, um, wouldn't do that because of the backlash they'd fear from the NRA. So, so the court seems to operate in, on the one level, it's let's keep our eyes on the law, but they are paying attention to the, the effects of their rulings in those ways? I think they do. I think judge, justices often like to decry the public reaction and think it doesn't matter to what they do, that all they should do is apply the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, but the truth is the justices have always been somewhat concerned about whether the public accepts their rulings or not. You know, the justices don't have a military uh, to <laughs> back up their rulings. And there have been cases in the past, such as Andrew Jackson, who uh, refused to implement a Supreme Court judgment uh, against him and, and simply said, hey, John Marshall made his ruling, they'll let him enforce it, which of course he couldn't do. So ever since the earliest days, the court has been concerned about how the public reacts to its rulings, uh, at least somewhat. And we saw that in the same-sex marriage context, where the justices were fearful of ruling too quickly on same-sex marriage um, for fear that it might cause a backlash. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about um, the, the, the subject that you cover so uh, so well and in, in, in such, uh, I think, broadly and deep in We the Corporations, how American businesses won their civil rights. Um, can you first talk briefly about the evolution of the corporation? My sense from actually uh, uh, probably around the time of Citizens United, this was quite a conversation, that originally corporations were much more limited, not just in their rights, but in the, the very definition of a corporation. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution? 
Well, uh, the first corporations were found in ancient Rome, 300 years before the birth of Christ, and they were designed to allow groups of people to pool their money together and carry on a common activity such as running a business. And corporations became popular in ancient Rome, used for shipbuilding, mining, constructing temples. And some of these earliest corporations had a global impact, by the way. In 1997, there was a study of ice core samples from Greenland, and they found evidence, clear evidence, of global pollution caused by Roman silver and lead mining corporations operating a couple centuries before the birth of Christ. Uh, So from the very beginning, corporations have been an attractive way to organize a business, but they've also been a potential threat to the health and well-being of the people due to their size and power. And that's only gotten worse in recent years because over the last 200 years, we've really seen the corporation move from being what was thought of as a quasi-public entity, only could be formed for limited purposes designed to enhance some social good or public, public welfare. Um, But today, of course, corporations can be formed for any reason and are primarily designed to pursue individual profit uh, exclusively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and let me just flesh out some of what you said. It's my sense that a a corporation served at the pleasure of the sovereign, uh, which in, uh, you know, the days of it was the English king. Today it would be the American people. and, and to perform that, that good, build that bridge, uh, explore that new territory for trade routes and so on, and even to go out of existence once it had accomplished uh, what it had been chartered for. That's right. Historically, corporations were what we might think of as quasi-public entities, that you needed special permission from the government to create one, and every corporation had to have a public purpose. That changed in the early 1800s, the development I talk about in We the Corporations, uh, in uh, a series of cases pushed by the legendary lawyer Daniel Webster, who is considered one of the greatest advocates in the history of the Supreme Court. He argued more than 220 cases in the Supreme Court in the early 1800s, uh, and he won a land landmark case that declared corporations to be private entities, not public entities. And because they were private entities, the government's power to regulate corporations was limited by the Constitution. And Daniel Webster's victory two centuries ago really put us on the path that led us to Citizens United. Very good. And one of the things that, I mean, there were a, a number of things in the book that struck me, but, but I'm going to read uh, this here. This is from a review I read of LA, uh, in LA Review of Books, but what he said, what this writer, Ryan Azad, said was that between 1868 and 1912, the Supreme Court heard 604 14th Amendment cases, 14th Amendment, equal protection, the amendment which, which was created to secure the rights of newly freed slaves, and only 28 of those 604 cases involved African Americans. Talk about the transformation of the, the, the use of the 14th Amendment. Well the, trans- corporate, well, the corporate transformation of the 14th Amendment from a protection and a bulwark for the newly freed slaves into a bulwark to protect business corporations from burdensome regulation is one of the most remarkable and disturbing stories about the Constitution that I've ever read, uh, much less written. Uh, and it involves the Southern Pacific Railroad Company in the 1880s. Uh, and the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, brought a remarkable series of what its lawyers called test cases, more than 60 of them in all, seeking to give corporations rights under the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment guarantees all citizens and persons equal guarantees all. Sorry, the 14th Amendment guarantees all persons equal protection of the laws, uh, and uh, it was adopted after the Civil War to protect the rights of the newly freed slaves. But the Southern Pacific Railroad said that it protected business corporations, too. Uh, And they had two cases that made it to the Supreme Court, each one more remarkable than the last. In the first, um, the Southern Pacific's lawyer, a man named Roscoe Conkling, an illustrious politician who had been a leader in Congress for many years and had even been nominated and confirmed to sit on the Supreme Court himself before he turned the seat down. Uh, He appeared before the justices and argued that when he was a young congressman, he was on the drafting committee that wrote the 14th Amendment and that the framers of the 14th Amendment did indeed intend to protect business corporations. Historians now know that Roscoe Conkling simply lied to the justices of the Supreme Court, and that was not an accurate reflection of the history. 
And then in the second case, again, more remarkable, the Southern Pacific Railroad second case came before the justices, uh, and the court didn't rule on whether corporations had rights under the Constitution. But uh, the reporter of decisions, the guy, a bureaucrat, who writes up the court's decisions, edits them, and puts them in the official Supreme Court volumes, uh, wrote a summary of the case saying that, indeed, they had held the corporations were protected by the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court would go on to cite that case for holding uh, that corporations had rights, even though the court specifically refused to address that issue in the case. Okay, so I want to emphasize what you just said, because it is such a linchpin, uh, you know, reading of, of the history, that Conkling says that the 14th Amendment was meant to mean something that it later turns out it wasn't. Okay. But that later thing, that in a what a head note, which is like a footnote, um, to a decision, someone chooses to interpret, uh, and he he added some words to that, right? In other words, he said, uh, I'm going to read it here. Uh, this is J. C. Bancroft Davis um, writing, and he says that the he quotes. So he quotes, he claims he is quoting the chief justice as having said that the court does not wish to hear argument on the question whether the 14th Amendment applies to these corporations. We are all of the opinion that it does. And that we are all of the opinion that it does is Davis's words, correct? And it's, it's always struck me, because I've heard this story for years, it's always struck me, why didn't some later justice say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we know that's not, we know that that wasn't the decision, we know that's just a head note. Why has that not happened? Well, it didn't really happen, uh, in part because the head note um, really did, in the end, capture the mood of the Supreme Court, even if it didn't accurately capture the decision in that case. Uh, and the court, in, beginning in the 1890s, moved into a period in its history known as the Lochner era, where the court was very conservative, very pro-business, and became famous, notorious even, for striking down laws for violating the rights of businesses. So uh, although uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad Company never really won its cases in the Supreme Court, giving it the constitutional right of equal protection of the laws, uh, nonetheless, the justices uh, were eager to adopt that principle in the years later, and indeed um, uh, would read the 14th Amendment in over the next 25 years very vigorously to protect business corporations. As you mentioned earlier, only 28 cases in the first 44 years of the 14th Amendment, over the first 48, sorry, over the first 44 years of the 14th Amendment history, there were only 28. 14th Amendment cases on the rights of African Americans, but 312 cases on the rights of business corporations. Wow. This is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Adam Winkler, law professor at UCLA and author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, and his latest, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. If you want to learn more, go to UCLA online, go to the law school, and you can find information about Adam and his work. Hello, this is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2018 conversation with Adam Winkler, constitutional law professor at UCLA and author of We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Now, you say that Citizens United uh, was not a radical break, uh, that it was sort of the culmination or just the next step in something which had been building and, and the, the book really traces the, the way that, that, that the, uh, the Supreme Court's treatment of corporations and, and rights of corporations has evolved over the years. For those who either don't know it or don't remember Tell a little bit about how Citizens United happened, because it wasn't it wasn't straightforward. Uh, come get a decision, get a decision. It worked quite differently than that, didn't it? That's right. Citizens United, when it was first brought, was a case that no one thought could be won. The Supreme Court had repeatedly upheld campaign finance restrictions on business corporations. Uh, and the lawsuit was brought really by an ideological group that was just determined to fight campaign finance laws on any grounds possible. Uh, and uh, the case really started out as a relatively small case uh, and one not likely to make big waves. Uh, but when it got to the Supreme Court, 
uh, Justice Sam Alito, really pushed the justices to see the case in broader terms, that restrictions on corporate money and elections, in Alito's mind, uh, were censorship, uh, a matter of government controlling speech and thought, and, and should be called into question. Uh, and he was ultimately successful in getting the Supreme Court not only to turn its attention to that issue, but ultimately rule in a landmark ruling that corporations have the same right as you and me to spend their money on elections. The big difference, of course, being that corporations have a lot more money than you and me. And, I mean, one can even, I mean, there's, there's, there's the carry-on sort of issues about how uh, there recently have been more restrictions on how unions can spend their funds politically. And yet if one says, well, whose funds are a corporation's funds? I suppose they are the shareholders. And yet the political spending of the corporation uh, never has to pass the shareholders. Uh, I mean, and I know that that was not in that decision, but it is something that's out there, isn't it? That's right. Citizens United, in fact, said that corporations and unions have the same right as people to spend their money on elections. And in some of the first elections after Citizens United, unions were among the biggest spenders on, uh, among outside groups. Um, however, the Supreme Court has, in recent years, made it more difficult for unions to finance political activity. Just this past uh, term, striking down um, uh, fair share fees for uh, non-members who nonetheless benefit from union negotiations. Um, and this is going to make it much harder for unions to really finance their political activity uh, and their negotiations. Um, and, 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 and if I'm correct, that didn't, it wasn't even talking, that, that, that ruling wasn't even talking about money spent on politics. It was just saying that even the money spent on negotiations, uh, these, these uh, non-members are freed from. That's right, and that will make it so that there's no reason for anyone to ever join a union because they can just free ride off the negotiations that the union has with the government, uh, and that will make it harder for the union to finance any of its important activities, including the activities designed to protect uh, its own union members. Yeah, and so when we talked earlier about the political ramifications of the Supreme Court in uh, voter, uh, I'd say, looking the other way in terms of voter suppression, voter ID laws, gerrymandering, and so on. This one is, is a, uh, a very political decision, knowing that unions are one of the biggest funders of the Democratic Party. Well, that's right. Uh, unions are big funders, and uh, maybe there's no coincidence that uh, it's a conservative set of judges that have overturned 40 years of precedent on unions uh, to restrict union political activity. Uh, it'll probably be another one of those things that historians look at and put along the lines with voter ID laws and gerrymandering and whatnot about how Republicans have in recent years been trying to uh, control uh, the levers and mechanisms of democracy in order to win. Right. Um, one of, just before we get to a little broader question about uh, the kinds of lawyers who argue at the Supreme Court, the kind of cases that are heard and so on, uh, I would like you to specifically tell what the actual ruling in Citizens United is, because I think it has become foggy to people. In other words, what couldn't be done prior to Citizens United and could be done after Citizens United? Well, Citizens United, uh, in essence, held that corporations have a First Amendment right to take out election ads, uh, and that so long as those ads uh, did not explicitly endorse a particular candidate or oppose a particular candidate, uh, so long as they sort of talked around it without being too explicit, um, and as long as they weren't coordinated with the candidate, then that was just a matter of free speech and the corporate spending is uh, no different than individual spending on that issue. Um, uh, there were some cases previous to Citizens United that may have suggested uh, that such a ruling was likely to come from the courts, um, but one difference is that the courts had always said that when it came to corporate spending in elections, as compared to individual spending on independent ads, uh, that 
corporations can be treated differently. And that, those go back; uh, those rules go back over a hundred years to uh, a campaign finance scandal involving Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s. One that I talk about in We the Corporations. Uh, we think about Roosevelt as a trust buster, but he was really in the pockets of big corporations, and his campaigns relied on corporate money um, uh, more than uh, any other president in uh, recent memory. Uh, and so, uh, uh, so, so campaigns, uh, can, so the law was changed to restrict corporate money in elections, and that was fine for over a hundred years until Citizens United. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, why? This will seem like a funny question, given the train of thought I've done. Why the limitations that you cited? In other words, if a corporation is being given the right of free speech, and if money spent on political campaigns is considered speech, why the limitations that they can't coordinate with the campaign, uh, that they can't explicitly endorse candidates, which is why, listeners, why you see so many more ads, two things. One, you see so many more ads that are negative against someone or uh, someone or a position than for because it is, it is easy. You don't have to endorse someone to go against someone else. So you, 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 that's one way you play with that ruling. What it does, though, is it leads to more and more negative advertising, which I think ultimately leads to more and more resignation, cynicism, low turnout, etc. But why, why those limitations if it's speech? Well, the court has said that uh, there is a compelling governmental interest in limiting explicit endorsements and limiting uh, the explicit assistance one gives to a campaign uh, under campaign finance laws. Uh, And so it's an existing rule that remains in place, although one wonders, given the Roberts Court's vigorousness of their assault on campaign finance laws, uh, whether these rules prohibiting coordination or uh, even express advocacy are likely to survive for long. I see. So what you're saying was it was existing law, existing law that said that that uh, coordination couldn't happen and that clear endorsement couldn't happen. And they didn't overturn that with the ruling in Citizen United. What they did was just open the floodgates without changing that rule. Yes, that's right. Okay, very good, because that's a clarification that I haven't quite understood. Okay, you talk about something called the Supreme Court Bar, uh, which is not the place where they hang out. It is not the, the, the bar of what something has to qualify for to be considered worthy of the Supreme Court. It is the set of lawyers who seem to practice Supreme Court law. Is that correct? And is it an entity that actually exists or just kind of, you look and you go, there, there is something that seems to be this. Well, there is technically a Supreme Court bar. If you want to practice and appear before the United States Supreme Court, you have to join uh, and be sworn in as a member of the Supreme Court bar. But what I talk about mostly in my book uh, is a narrow subset of the Supreme Court bar, a group of elite lawyers who uh, have made it a specialty to argue cases before the Supreme Court. Um, for In early American history, there was a very notable Supreme Court bar led by lawyers like Daniel Webster. Um, um, really illustrious lawyers who appeared over and over again. For many years, the Supreme Court bar kind of disappeared. There wasn't a group of elite lawyers who specialized in the Supreme Court. But over the last 30 years, that elite bar has risen again. And one of the distinguishing features of that bar is that it's a bunch of big firm lawyers who represent big corporations. And so we have a, uh, a group of lawyers who are disproportionately successful at getting their cases heard by the Supreme Court, and that those lawyers primarily represent big business and big corporations. Okay, and let me just point out, you make this number was uh, quite, uh, just the size of it amazed me. During the 2016-2017 term, the Supreme Court heard only 76 of 6,305 appeals it received. That's right. And the ones that it accepted were far more likely to be submitted by one of these mem- by one of the members of the illustrious Supreme Court bar. 
Uh, and it's one of the reasons why corporations are doing so well in the Roberts Court is because they have the best lawyers money can buy. And it's actually one of the common threads throughout the history of the corporate civil rights movement, if you will, is that corporations won their rights in courts. They didn't go out on the streets to march and to carry protest signs. They went to courts, and they always had the best lawyers money could buy to file innovative, risky lawsuits that, even if they were almost destined to lose, uh, would still be worth the pain that they would cause lawmakers uh, when they tried to regulate business corporations. That's really in contrast to, say, civil rights organizations or women's rights organizations, which traditionally have been underfunded and haven't had the resources to fight um, risky lawsuits. They've often had to be very, very careful about which cases they bring. Right. Um, you, you point out that federal judges must swear or affirm that they will, quote, do equal right to the poor and to the rich. And yet you quote Sonia Sotomayor. I don't look at the names of the lawyers who are arguing cases before me. That's always been a way of controlling the influence of money and the quality of lawyering that, could, that it could buy. She's an exception. Yes. <laughs> She is an exception, and in part because in the Supreme Court, a lot of the sort of initial screening work um, is done by clerks, by kids who are straight out of law school or a year or two out of law school, um, and they tend to be uh, more easily swayed by the big-name people uh, than uh, probably anyone. But even still, I do think that the Supreme Court bar does have an effect on most of the justices. When you see a lawyer appearing before you who's impressed you many times in the past, you're likely to give that person the benefit of the doubt this time. Yeah, you're going to listen differently, is my guess. And you're going to ask questions differently, probably, as well. Um, if the rights of corporations should or could be pared back, if this, I mean, what you chart is a pretty singular rise, you know. And one of the ways it seems to me that that works is if you have a lot of money, you can throw things at the wall. And, you know, you lose this time you find another case in a year or two that that pushes that boundary just a little more and so on. And you can have, you can play a long game if you've got enough money. But so, so I see, and it seems to me one of the messages of your book is this growing, growing set of, of, of rights where, as you point out, originally corporations had property rights. Of course, they needed that. That's how the rule of law works. But that the, the civil rights, the rights of expression, the, the rights, I mean, now of religious preference, which is bizarre to me, um, ha- have grown. If you were going to attempt to pare them back, how could it be done? Well, there's a big move afoot currently to amend the Constitution, to declare that corporations should have no rights under the Constitution, that they are not people. Um, they, would still 19- have, they would still have things like property rights, though, yes? Well, that's one of the big questions about the language of the constitutional amendments that have been bandied about. I certainly understand and sympathize with the motivations of those who pushed for a constitutional amendment to fight back against corporate power in American politics. Um, I wonder whether uh, a constitutional amendment that says corporations have no rights whatsoever is the right approach, however, because it would suggest that corporations don't even have property rights. They would not be protected by the Fifth Amendment uh, that says government shall not seize your property without paying just compensation. So does that mean if corporations don't have that right, then government can seize their property? Can government uh, charge a uh, company with a criminal offense and not try them the way due process of mm-hmm. law requires? Mm-hmm. If there's no constitutional right, then maybe they don't have to do that. And think about... Now, what would Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress today do to Fox News? Sorry, dude, what would Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress do today to the New York Times and CNN, both corporations, if they had no constitutional restriction on their censorship? So I do think that uh, we want to restrict corporate money in politics, but maybe taking all rights away from all corporations is a step too far. Okay, so you, you, you pointed out 19 states have endorsed the Constitution amendment to declare an end and and is is it universal that all 19 have the uh, an end to all corporate rights or, or have some been more nuanced about it well, the endorsements have really just sort of encouraged Congress to take up the issue and the, per, and the proposals that have been uh, uh, bandied about and include uh, corporate personhood proposals. Uh, I imagine there's definitely some room uh, for maneuverability among the states. Uh, some states might prefer there just to be a campaign finance amendment rather than one that takes all rights away from corporations. So we'll, uh, we'll have to see how that amendment uh, develops in the 
future. Now, th- this 19 states endorsing, this has no actual um, power, right? This is merely a movement sort of nudging um, their legislate, the, the, the national its states. For this to be, for them to endorse it, it happens at their legislature and is signed by their governors. But on, so 19 have done that. But they're, what they're doing is they're just nudging the Congress to take this up, right? That's right. There's no, uh, there's not been a constitutional amendment that's been submitted to the states from Congress. So this is not, we're not at the ratification stage yet. This is just about encouraging Congress to act, to send an amendment to the states for ratification. And then one, one last thing, I do want to turn to to gun rights a little bit, uh, but a couple of, uh, one of the interesting strains in your book is that um, moments at which progressive appearing uh, rulings end up being, we talked about it already with the 14th Amendment, but it's happened in others as well, being then taken up and and used to promote uh, corporate interests. For instance, um, the Nader's public citizen Virginia pharmacy ruling, or even the Post's um, publication of the, Pen- the the Washington Post publication of the Pentagon Papers ruling uh, that was in the, in the recent movie, The Post. Talk about that. Well, one, when we think about corporate constitutional rights, one thing we have to keep in mind is that uh, media corporations that print our newspapers, that provide us with our news media and our radio stations, uh, they are uh, usually formed as corporations, as for-profit business corporations. And if we say that corporations have no First Amendment rights whatsoever, then it would suggest that media corporations have no First Amendment rights whatsoever. And um, this was uh, part of the reason why corporations won First Amendment rights, because the first cases were not cases challenging campaign finance laws so much. The first successful cases were cases uh, brought by newspaper companies that were challenging censorship by the likes of Huey Long Mm -hmm. back in Louisiana in the 1930s. Uh, For listeners who don't know Huey Long, Huey Long was Trump before Trump. He was a populist demagogue who uh, won election to the governorship uh, of Louisiana on the eve of the Great Great Depression, uh, promising to make Louisiana great again. Uh, And when the media came out against his policies, he accused the media of publishing fake news uh, and uh, imposed a tax on newspapers to try to punish them. That went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, wait, that's a violation of freedom of speech. And yes, of course, these newspaper corporations have to be able to make that claim, too. Otherwise, the freedom of speech will be um, uh, not worth very much. Uh, and, uh, and we've seen that uh, in, in the years since. Uh, some of the most important First Amendment cases in American history were brought by media corporations. New York Times against Sullivan, giving us the, uh, establishing the right to criticize public officials. And the Pentagon Papers case, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the subject of the movie The Post, which is really a movie about a for-profit business corporation asserting its First Amendment rights. Okay. And you, you, you suggest that, that one has to pay attention to these sorts of things, that, that the media, I mean, as we said, if you said corporations have no rights, wait, the media does need free speech rights. What are some of the nuances that you think where, where even to your eye, corporate corporate civil rights make sense, and where's the line where that stops happening? Well, an interesting line was drawn by the Supreme Court itself uh, over a hundred years ago, that the Supreme Court, even in a time when it was very business-friendly, like the Lochner era period that I mentioned earlier, even back then the court drew a boundary on the rights of corporations, saying that corporations had property rights, but not liberty rights. They were entitled to the protections for their property and their assets. Otherwise, no one would form a corporation and no one would invest in one. Um, At the same time, corporations did not need uh, the same rights of personal autonomy, bodily integrity, and uh, political freedom that individuals had. And so back in the early 1900s, the Supreme Court said corporations, for-profit business corporations, do not have a right to discriminate against unwanted customers, even though today's Supreme Court, in cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop, seems to suggest that corporations uh, and businesses that don't want to serve same-sex couples have a constitutional right to do so. And back in the early 1900s, courts consistently rejected claims by corporations challenging campaign finance laws a um, hundred years before Citizens United. Again, these are lines that today's Roberts Court has lost sight of. 
Okay, a couple of points that you make about gun uh, control that I found fascinating. One is that you, after Ferguson, Missouri, and the shooting of Michael Brown, you wrote about the role guns play in creating the environment of hostility between police and communities like Ferguson, and that uh, that this heavily armed civilian population is is a cause a cause factor to the hair trigger responses of the police. Um, yeah, certainly. If you've uh, ever done some training with police officers and gone through a little bit of their training, you'll see that one of the things that they're taught very early on is that uh, everyone you meet has the opportunity to kill you. Uh, and the only thing you can control is whether they will uh, have uh, success in doing so uh, and whether you can control the situation better than they can. Uh, and when you have that kind of lesson being taught to police officers, uh, which is only a natural lesson in a world that has 400 million guns, as the, the approximate number of guns we have in America today, um, of course police officers are going to be scared because they're afraid of getting shot, as any reasonable person would be. And then you also point out, and I think this is interesting, that if you want to change gun laws, then you probably have to change gerrymandering. You say much of the NRA's strength comes from partisan gerrymandering. Uh, Explain that. Well, here's the thing. You know, one reason why the NRA is so successful is because they're really good at swaying votes among conservative Republicans. And if they endorse your primary opponent in the Republican Party, that primary opponent's likely to win. And so um, Republican officials really fall all over themselves to try to appease the NRA, even if many of them would support more reasonable gun regulations, because they don't want to get primaried. And the reason why these primaries matter so much is because with partisan gerrymandering, the general election doesn't count very much. All that matters is the primary election, because it's effectively a one-party district. Um, and if the only thing uh, election that matters is the primary, well, then the more extreme candidates are going to win out all the more often. Yeah. And the uh, courts, the Supreme Court had two different chances, I, I believe, to take on uh, gerrymandering uh, this term, and they chose not to. Is that something that they're just not going to touch? Or, or when it becomes uh, more conservative, will they find a way to, to suddenly want to rule on it? We'll see. I, it's hard to know. You know, so far it's been about every 10 to 15 years the Supreme Court takes a partisan gerrymandering case and then tries to figure out what to do with it. Uh, and ultimately punts because it can't figure out how to handle partisan gerrymandering. And it is a difficult issue, to be honest. Uh, we, we expect elected officials um, to be somewhat partisan, to protect incumbents a little bit when they draw district lines. That's not to say it's a good thing or something we should encourage, but it's very much a natural part of the system. Um, at the same time, we don't want excessive partisanship. We do want some competitive elections. Figuring out how to draw that line between those two positions is very challenging. I get it. I get it. So, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I really appreciate how many different bases we've been able to touch on. Um, Again, Adam Winkler's books include Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, and his latest, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. For this conversation and many other interviews, articles, transcripts of interviews, join me in pursuit of a world that just might work. Go to terrencemcnally.net or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're both the same website. That's T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net or a long phrase, a world that just might work.com. Um, if you want to receive a weekly email announcement of guests and issues, plus usually eight or so articles that I choose to flesh out the conversation, adding examples and context, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform Podcast on iTunes. You'll find years of podcasts at my site, and at iTunes. Listen anytime, anywhere. Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to G, my engineer, Mark Maxwell and Greg Baca in production, and George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. Most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Thank you, Adam Winkler, and keep up your good work. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack. 
where we shine a light on our callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. Imagine being diagnosed with bone cancer while in your 20s. How might that affect you and your life decisions? We recently spoke to Daniel Ray Hilsinger, a Northern California-based filmmaker and singer-songwriter who received that diagnosis five years ago. Today, the healthcare justice activist writes songs to inspire change. To the curb out the hospital doors Those thugs even When I met people really struggling and being at a time in your life when you're literally on the edge of life or death and it's just like an overwhelming pressure and fear. Also having to navigate this system that is so broken and is so confusing, I think, in many ways. I've seen people in the chemo wards on the phone begging for They won't do it, they won't give you what you need. While you're dying, they count your money. Get the full Code Whack story on com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy.